Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Here we are, the fourth anniversary special. I'm delighted to say that the show has kept going for years now. The audience has grown immensely. It is wonderful to know that there are so many fans of the Victorian era out there. I've been lucky enough to have chatted to people from Australia and Canada to Sweden and Scotland about the show and the Victorian age. I'm especially pleased we've had the chance to dig into the details of the lives of the everyday people of the era and the philosophical issues around them, just at a time as the empire itself becomes more controversial and paradoxically less well understood in popular culture. I'd also like to thank some listeners for their lovely reviews. First up, from Ken Abbott, USA, five star, quote, great subject matter, well researched and well performed. I would willingly listen to Chris Fernandez Packham read the phone book. I really like how he manages to keep bias out of the material and delivery, end quote. Thanks for that, Ken. I'm showing my age. As recently, I explained to my daughter that in the days before mobiles, we used a book with our names, home addresses and phone numbers in it. She looked at me like I had accidentally travelled from the dark ages. Then she lectured me on the importance of not making personal details public. Next up is a cracker of a review from Annie HW, USA, five star. Quote, I love history and I'm grateful to the talented people who create so many wonderful podcasts. But let's face it, some are better than others and some are a lot better than others. This one is a lot better. We all remember history in school when we memorised dates and got an overview of history in general. And depending on where you're from, you most likely learned about the history of your country. If you were lucky, you got a teacher who managed to make it interesting. But mostly it was pretty dry, and all you did was memorise enough to pass a test. What makes history interesting to me are the people. They made mistakes. Big mistakes, as it turned out. But it's easy for us to see today. What was it like for them? The nobility, kings, queens, emperors are great place markers. They represent a time period and they influence that time, but it's the people they ruled who make those times relatable. And that's exactly what makes this podcast so good. It's those questions about the people and the times in which they lived, who they were, how did they live, how did they feel, and what if we had lived there and then. History is so much more than dates and particular events. It's people like you and me, and only these people are living in a time that is so much different in terms of what was available to them. Honestly, subscribe to this wonderful podcast, listen to a few episodes, then give this man a review and a donation. There are no ads, and the research he does is incredible. This is truly one of the best history podcasts out there. End quote. Great review, and really well said about the people. That's what history really is. Understanding the people. Thank you. Last up, from Chance203, UK 5 Star, quote, Love this podcast. So interesting. And the host has such a relaxing voice and really helps me sleep. Not in a bad way. I also listen to this whilst working. So good. Honestly, 
such a perfect, fascinating look at history. End quote. That's fantastic. Thank you. Just remember to never use my show for ASMR when driving. Also, listener and historian Brooke has reminded me that I don't pronounce Van Damon's land correctly. I'm sorry for that. I can assure you it will not be the last name I mangle. Heaven help us when we get to India and China. My intentions are always good, at least. Brooke also spotted that I referred to Lady Franklin as the wife of the governor of New South Wales at one point. Whereas she was, of course, the wife of the governor of Van Diemen's Land. I stress that I got the posting of said governor wrong by slip of the tongue, rather than suggesting she was committing bigamy. Whatever her grievous sins against the fine whiskey distilling industry, she was, from an unbiased point of view, a remarkable person, well worthy of study. Her ambition, intelligence and sense of adventure were amazing and she deserves me to redress the balance at some point. I will give her a minisode in due course and regale you with all her adventures over a nice glass of whiskey. I've also had a couple of questions from listener Alexander Pedersen. Quote, I have a few questions I hope you can answer in the podcast. I was wondering how the not-so-fortunate Victorians would shave their faces. Did they have any home remedies to help with razor burn, etc.? Also, what was a normal day at home like? What were the activities? Without sounding sexist and like a complete idiot, I want to know what the men did when they had a day off work, end quote. I was going to answer these now, but when I got started, suddenly I had 20 minutes of material and lots more to cover. So I'll return to these questions in more detail in later shows. I've ordered some research materials and I'll be starting with a deep dive on beards. I'd also just like to say a big thank you to all of you patrons and anyone who's left a review over the years. It has meant a lot to have such kind and generous support. Today's topic, now that we finally reached it, was hard to choose. Not because I'm short of things to say, but because it is always hard to pick out a topic out of many. Lots of listeners would always like some more Dickens, of course, whilst quite a lot have asked for Canadian history. I've also had requests for theatre, medicine, epidemics and maritime disasters. All of these definitely very Victorian. This anniversary episode is anchored in the 1840s as that matches our main timeline. It was an incredibly busy decade, as you know. Albert and Victoria were married in 1840. Canada will be covered in the Empire series, and the official province of Canada was created in 1840, so it is coming, but not today. Transportation to the New South Wales colony was being abolished in 1840, whilst emancipation in the Empire was rolling out with the Abolition of Slavery Act in August 1840. A batch of British colonists arrived in New Zealand, founded the city of Wellington, followed by the Treaty of Waitangi in February 1840, a momentous event in New Zealand history that still impacts today. The 1840s saw the Great Irish Famine, the Anglo-Sikh Wars, and the annexation of the Punjab. The Year of Revolutions in 1848 shook the continent of Europe. The opening of the Oregon Trail and the Great Wagon Trains, the Monroe Doctrine 
and the annexation of Texas all happened in the 1840s. There was just so much going on. But I'm going to pick a landmark event that somehow eclipses even these events and all the rest. Yet they were strangely overlooked at the time. Two geniuses achieved two remarkable inventions. Two of the most iconic names in scientific history enter the stage today. Lovelace and Babbage. Ada Lovelace made a breakthrough by creating what was the world's first algorithm. She ensured that in future, humanity would have something truly meaningful transmit over distances. Countries had had wars and annexed territories before. There had been conventions and treaties, famines and migrations, factories and aqueducts, but never before had humanity laid the foundations of the information age. Her story, of course, links to Charles Babbage. We will step back a little further for a moment. The story of the computer begins with realising that the word computer is older than the electrical device we use the term for now. The word computer meant a person who was employed solely to make mathematical calculations and put them into tables so that other people could simply look up the answer to a calculation they needed solved, often as part of a larger series of problems. This could save mathematicians and astronomers hours and hours of time, but required dedicated patients from the computers who were doing the mental arithmetic and preparing the tables. Of course, good as they were, errors could creep in unnoticed. As mathematician John Herschel said to Babbage, they were hidden as sunken rocks at sea. These errors could ruin years of work and be incredibly hard to spot. Babbage, before he invented the famous proto-computers, was actually a computer himself. Now, like so many of the industrialists in the Victorian era, he wanted to find a way to make the machine do it for him. As Wolfgang Schevelbuschk, in his article World Machines, the steam engine, the railway and the computer said, quote, At the high point of 19th century industrial culture, Franz Relou, the great theorist of machinery, caught the double-crossing nature of the machine when he defined it as the merciless transformer, the old cosmic freedom of natural forces, into the order and law which no external order could shake, end quote. Or in other words, once you built a machine to replace parts of nature, you couldn't take it back. Babbage was building the ultimate replacement of so much of nature. He didn't realise it, since it would take Ada Lovelace's brilliant mind to provide the key piece of the puzzle. He had been appointed by a committee for checking errors in astronomical calculations to try to find further errors. Even today, checking other people's work for mistakes is tedious. In this case, Babbage had two computers going through the calculations for him, then bringing him the results for him to triple-check against their double-check. He eventually snapped. Quote, Mr. Herschel and myself, having been appointed by the Astronomical Society on a committee for the purpose of procuring certain calculations, we first agreed on the Popper formulae, and then employed 
two independent computers to reduce them to numbers, ourselves comparing the manuscript results. On the first of these occasions, my friend Herschel brought with him the calculations of both computers and we commenced the tedious process of verification. After a time, so many discrepancies occurred and at one point these discordances were so numerous that I exclaimed, I wish to God these calculations had been executed by steam, end quote. He was motivated because he really, really hated his job. He felt it was as tedious as repetitive manual labour. If only he thought, I really could get a machine to do this work, like the steam engines do. See, don't the best inspirations spring from the lazy person's guide to wisdom? There must be an easier way to do this. You should notice it wasn't capitalism or the promise of getting rich that provided the motivation here. He wasn't interested in selling and making his fortune. He had just really had it up to his neck with adding stuff up all day. Frankly, it is a little surprising he was doing this at all since he was actually in line to inherit the equivalent of 10 million from his father at some point. Babbage started with building a difference engine in 1821. This was an advanced mechanical calculator that used the method of finite differences to perform complex addition. Babbage considered a system of numbers in various formats before deciding on decimal, partly to overcome some of the engineering challenges. By using decimal and digital methods, the machine would only recognise whole numbers. Intermediate numbers were rejected and caused the wheels to jam in the machine, which was an excellent method for error detection, as you could just locate the jammed wheel. When the calculations were done, a table was printed. It wasn't ever fully built and would have weighed four tonnes if ever completed. Needless to say, with the perennial short-sightedness of politicians, government funding would eventually be cut in 1842. Babbage had problems with the project all along and had a bust-up with his chief engineer, whom he fired. The engineer left, taking all the plans, including the ones Babbage had drawn himself. And remember, it's not like Babbage had photocopies or a backup on his hard drive. Babbage wanted to switch to a more advanced machine, the analytical engine. This seemed the perfect opportunity. It would have the essential functions of a general purpose computer. Even if he didn't use the terms, according to the Computer History Organization, quote, the engine had a store where numbers and intermediate results could be held and a separate mill where the arithmetic process was performed. It had an internal repertoire of the four arithmetical functions and could perform direct multiplication and division. It was also capable of functions for which we have modern names. Conditional branching, looping, iteration, microprogramming, parallel processing, iteration, latching, polling and pulse shaping amongst others. Though Babbage nowhere used these terms. It had a variety of outputs including a hard copy printout, punched cards, graph plotting and the automatic production of stereotypes, trays of soft material into which results were impressed that could be used as moulds for making printing plates. 
the logical structure of the analytical engine was essentially the same as that which has dominated computer design in the electronic era. The separation of the memory, the store, from the central processor, the mill, serial operation using a fetch-execute cycle, and facilities for inputting and outputting data and instructions. Calling Babbage the first computer pioneer is not a casual tribute, end quote. He and Ada worked on the idea of machines that would use existing mechanical calculators but go further than anything before. It would have a punch card input based on Jacques Jacquard's system of punch card patterns for weaving but would have a calculation system and a system for memory. Babbage was a genius and a skilled engineer. Oddly, modern popular culture tends to focus more on Ada Lovelace. Part of this is her natural star quality, and part is a reaction to male-centric history. That's fine. It is important her achievements are recognised. Just don't forget, you need to understand what both of them were doing as a team, to really grasp the sheer genius of what they were doing. Remember, this is a man working when people mostly travelled on horseback, soldiers were using flintlock muskets, people still urinated in a bedpan, ships were mostly wooden with sails, the Australias were still being conquered, and Japan had isolated itself to ensure it could continue to use medieval technology. Get here! was this remarkable man creating the essence of human civilization for the rest of time. Without him, perhaps there would be no great breakthroughs in the 20th century. No satellites or moon landing or smartphones or World Wide Web or God knows how much else. There were various versions and a complete engine of any type was never fully built. He created a kind of new mechanical and systems diagram to enable people to actually build them. Still, the Science Museum in London has built a modern difference engine from the original plans. It took them 17 years. It was an engineering triumph. Also, vindicated Babbage, as it used only tools and techniques available to him. His difference engine could have been built using 19th century materials, and it would have worked. He was thwarted by political and economic short-sightedness. There's even a project called Plan 28, trying to build an analytical engine in real life. That has meant lengthy analysis of vast mountains of Babbage's substantial papers and plans. But if it works like his difference engine has proved to, the computer age could perhaps have begun in the 1850s. Only we could have seen past the money. That's the physical side of things. Where does Ada fit in? Well, for starters, let's get her name right. Then see the journey of the dynamic duo Lovelace and Babbage. Born in 1815, her full name was Augusta Ada Byron. Well, yes, listeners, her father was Lord Byron. And you might remember we got part of this story all the way back in episode 15. Well, I told you Lord Byron fled England, leaving behind him a wife and legitimate daughter. Augusta Ada Byron was the daughter he abandoned. Her mother, unsurprisingly, wanted her daughter to turn out nothing 
like her father. Ada had excellent private tutors, but her mother was determined not to indulge her interest in writing like her father. So Ada's interest in science and maths was encouraged instead, or rammed down her throat if she was less receptive. Her mother, Lady Byron, strongly believed in education for women. Interestingly, she also came to believe that the learning environment had to be conducive to critical thought, not just children learning facts and regurgitating them. Behind closed doors, though, her mother was not close to her and left the child raising to Ada's grandmother, but sent affectionate letters to Ada that could be produced in case Lord Byron turned up and a custody battle began. Even the absent Lord Byron managed to put pen to paper and write to Lady Byron about the isolation of Ada in 1816. Quote, they tell me young Ada is well and shows marvellous indications of acquaintance with her nurse and grandmother. It is perhaps time she should begin to recognise another of her relations. End quote. Ada was kept under watch by various domestics, she dubbed the Furies, who were told to report signs of any deviance like her father. Lady Byron considered Ada perverse and in need of patient education to keep her on the straight and narrow. Of course, Lady Byron herself was unusual in many ways. Brought up by a wealthy landowner, she was a poet before she married Byron and was noted as being wild, capricious and eccentric. She would go on to become a noted philanthropist involved in prison reform and the cooperative movement and a philosopher with a controversial legacy that included her bitter vengefulness towards Lord Byron, a habit of being outspoken to the point of rudeness, a wild set of mood swings and a deep-seated need to control people, especially her children like Ada. Clearly, Ada came from an unusual and difficult background and certainly not one that fits with the stereotype of the meek Georgian woman or the straight-laced Victorian lady. Lady Byron partially separated from Lord Byron because he didn't like money, and he tried to give away what little he didn't drink or gamble, and ended up with bailiffs constantly banging on the door. On top of this, he refused to make money from his poetry to avoid spiritual corruption, and even gave his publisher the equivalent of £100,000 as a gift to remove its burden and temptation from his poetic soul. Luckily for Lady Byron, her enormous inheritance arrived after the separation and she became one of the wealthiest women in England. So Ada was spared a childhood of poverty. She was therefore free to live the life of the intellectual aristocrat supported by the desperate back-breaking labour of poor men, women and children toiling in the darkness of the mines on the land she owned. Ada's young life was rather isolated. She lived on her mother's private estates with her governess and her pet cat, Mrs Puff. She was absolutely forbidden from seeing a picture of her father. The only one in the house was kept hidden behind a velvet curtain. She studied history, literature, languages, geography, music, chemistry, sewing, shorthand and mathematics, and an elementary level of geometry and algebra. When her mother discovered Ada was enjoying geography more than maths, she fired the geography tutor and added more maths lessons for Ada. Failing to work hard enough 
to satisfy her mother's excessive standards, was often punished by being made to write apology notes, lay motionless for hours, or being placed in solitary confinement. At the age of 11, she was at least given a tour of Europe to broaden her knowledge of the world, but an ideal childhood this was not. At the age of 12, Ada experimented with plans for flight, including aerial compass navigation, weights and materials, having picked up the passion on her trip. Sadly, she was then struck down with various illnesses for three years. When she was 17 in 1833, she was presented at court, then attended one of Babbage's parties and was introduced to him. The mental click was almost, but not quite instant. Her immediate understanding of the difference engine helped. For modern 21st century listeners, you need to overcome the modern cynicism. Yes, he was an older man, and she was a beautiful young woman. There was nothing beyond a passionate devotion to science between them. Some historians feel that Ada had always wanted a father figure, whilst Babbage had recently lost a daughter of similar age to Ada. In 1834, she was introduced to the brilliant and prominent polymath scientist Mary Somerville. She adored her new mentor Mary. I'd need a whole episode to cover Mary's work, and she left enough of a legacy to have an asteroid field, lunar crater, school, island, and government committee rooms named after her, as well as having her likeness printed on a banknote. Ada could of course reply that she has a computer program named after her, was an inspiration for Alan Turing, and a brilliant series of cult comics. They remained friends and would sometimes discuss difficult mathematical problems over tea. She was later mentored by Augustus de Morgan, the first professor of mathematics at University of London. This was not typical for women of the time, but indicates Ada's quite astonishing intellect. Yet despite the very different life she would live, her path was in some ways the same as her father's. Like him, she was witty, a brilliant writer, beautiful, flirtatious, and had a scandalous affair with a tutor when she was 17, which had to be covered up. She would go on to drink a lot like her father, to indulge in opium, allegedly to try to seduce Michael Faraday, and she also swore and smoked. Mathematician and presenter Hannah Fry described her as, quote, self-centred and obstinate, yet lacking in confidence, charismatic and enchanting, yet forceful and manipulative, end quote. This was not the picture of ideal Victorian womanhood, but being an aristocrat, rich and a genius, allowed her a lot of latitude. Her tragically young death was caused by cancer, treated only at best with ineffective pain medicines. Like her father, she died at the age of 36, having flamed brilliantly against the dull sky of humanity for far too brief a span. In 1835, she was introduced to William King, a baronet and fellow of the Royal Society. They swiftly married, so her name changed from Ada Augustus Byron to Ada Augusta King. He was made an Earl in 1838, taking the title the Earl of Lovelace, making Ada Augusta King the Countess of Lovelace. That's the name popular history gives her, but she was actually Ada King, not Ada Lovelace. 
The Lovelace was the title. Despite how difficult it was for a woman in the 19th century to overcome sexist barriers and break into a science field, Ada managed to work with Babbage. Unfortunately, Babbage was absolutely not forward-thinking in his attitudes towards women in general. He wasn't some proto-feminist just because he worked with Ada. He still considered he was the genius and she was the note-taker and transcriber. He was certainly friends with her and genuinely cared for her and certainly held her intelligence in extremely high regard. Just don't mistake it for the more modern relationship of equals. James Essinger, author of a number of books on Ada and Babbage, compares them to Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak of Apple. Babbage was the tech genius who excelled at working on the hardware behind the scenes, like the was, whilst Ada was more the visionary, like Steve Jobs. She understood people, good communication skills, and the big picture of what an analytical engine could really become. This was important since Babbage had been commissioned by the British government to build the first difference engine. The cost was a then staggering £17,000, equivalent to two brand new Royal Navy frigates, a not inconsiderable investment. Prime Minister Peel was nonplussed when Babbage appeared in his office and announced he had given up on the difference engine in order to build the better analytical engine. So, could he have some money for that, please? Peel pointed out the government had already paid the 17000 for the machine that Babbage had lost interest in, and if he couldn't see a prototype and some benefits, he'd not be willing to stump up taxpayer cash. Oh, and where was the stuff he'd already paid for? God knows what he'd have said if Babbage had mentioned his engineer had run off with the original design plans. Politicians in Parliament openly mocked Babbage, with one wit on the back benches, suggesting that Babbage asked the machine to calculate when it would finally be ready. Let's be honest though, the applications for the engines, when completed, would have paid for themselves a million times over. Or, leaving the economic case aside, or ignoring the benefits to science in general, if you were a particularly visionary and cold-hearted Victorian imperialist or military man, imagine what the military potential of the engines was. Cryptographics, aligned with Morse code and the telegraph, would have introduced a level of security to military communications not seen until World War II. The swift calculation of artillery fire would have meant early transition to accurate, out-of-line-of-sight bombardments from ships or on shore. When you consider the first computer of a type similar to the engines being built was actually the Colossus British code-breaking system in 1944, or that Atanasoff and his graduate student Clifford Berry designed a computer in 1939 able to store information on its main memory for the first time, you can see how staggeringly far ahead of their time Lovelace and Babbage actually were with their plans. This was unfortunate timing since Ada was realising the full real potential of the machines. After the birth of her third child, she was keen to get into mathematics again. 
and her husband just wasn't able to intellectually stimulate her like Babbage. He did write on agricultural topics and a statistical comparison of crop yields and food supplies of Britain and France during the Napoleonic Wars. He eventually displayed award-winning brick-making processes, the Great Exhibition in 1851, and some innovative construction projects. So he wasn't exactly stupid by any means, but Ada was mulling over ideas for which maths to pursue, including many ideas that foreshadowed some of the great works of the late 19th and early 20th century. She toyed with the idea of creating a mathematical model of human thought processes a decade before Boole himself did his great work on logic and human thought. Babbage had given some lectures and held some discussions in Italy about the analytical engine. On the advice of Charles Wheatstone, co-inventor of the Telegraph, Ada translated a French commentary on the events. She presented it to a surprised Babbage, and he invited Ada to translate his detailed notes to English as memoirs of events, and suggested she add her own notes. She became incredibly excited, and her notes became more important than the main memoir, and three times longer. In them, she said, quote, The distinctive characteristics of the analytical engine, and that which has rendered it possible to endow mechanism with such extensive facilities, as bid fair to make this engine the executive right hand of abstract algebra, is the introduction into it of the principle which Jacquard devised for regulating, by means of punched card, the most complicated patterns in the fabrication of brocaded stuffs. It is in this that the distinction between the two engines lie. Nothing of that sort exists in the difference engine. We may say most aptly that the analytical engine weaves algebraic patterns just as the Jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves, end quote. She went on to say, quote, again, the analytical engine might act upon other things besides numbers were objects found whose mutual fundamental relations could be expressed by those of the abstract science of operations and which should be also susceptible of adaptations to the action of the operating notion and mechanism of the engine. Supposing, for instance, that the fundamental relations of pitched sounds in the science of harmony and of musical composition were susceptible to such expression and adaptations, the machine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music any degree of complexity and extent, end quote. At a stroke, she had identified two vital foundations of the entire computer industry, that the general purpose computer could be programmable and that it could be applied to any problem that was reducible to mathematics, even if the initial problem was not in a mathematical field. Then the results of this could itself be reduced to maths again to be solved, meaning the machine could be used to solve further problems arising from its earlier solutions. Unfortunately, it is sometimes far from clear what parts of the ideas in the notes 
were purely aiders and what were Babbage's and what were a mix. There's a lot of debate on the topic between historians. The reduction of music to an algorithmic form of computation was absolutely hers. And so was the program for Bonoli numbers. But it is likely that Babbage had to do a lot of the basic calculations since Ada had only learnt about Bonelli numbers a few months before. Ada was in no doubt about the notes. They were brilliant. She was brilliant. She was better at writing maths than her father had been at writing poetry. Why, they were even funny, as she said in her letter about them. Quote, The pithy and vigorous nature of the style seems to me to be most striking, and there is at times a half-satirical and humorous dryness, which I suspect make me the most formidable reviewer. I am quite thunderstruck at the power of the writing, end quote. The whole letter is a work of ego mania, and she showed her beginning to display an arrogance, self-centred entitlement that was equal of that of her father's at his worst. It would lead to a massive blow-up in fairly short order. Wheatstone was a bit of a political operator. He had grasped the importance of Babbage's work, but was deeply worried that Babbage had no political nous or real financing. After that disastrous meeting with Peel, Babbage was persona non grata with the PM. Wheatstone had sized up Ada and worked out her ego was out of proportion to her as yet meagre, solid scientific accomplishments but that she would be perfect for what he had in mind. He wanted her to establish her reputation, and he wanted to get her a job as a maths tutor to Prince Albert. This would have a double benefit. The prince's unquenchable curiosity would soon lead him from Ada to Babbage, and thence the analytical engine. Her political skills and personal charm would be placed under the greater power of the dynamic political whirlwind of Prince Albert. Queen Victoria would of course have been delighted for Albert to have another pet project for improvement and Peel would easily have been won round by the royal power couple and the charming Ada. Disastrously though, Babbage couldn't see past his own limitations around people and finance and Ada's incredible and rude ego plus the letter led to an explosion. In July 1843, Babbage had made some minor changes to the draft. Ada wrote to him saying, quote, I must now explain one or two things. I am much annoyed at your having altered my note. You know I am always willing to make any required alterations myself, but I cannot endure another person to meddle with my sentences. End quote. You can imagine how the senior engineer, scientist and co-author felt about that. She then berated him for losing a note when she couldn't find it, calling him inaccurate and disorganised. She even threatened to swear at him, which by the standards of an aristocratic lady in 1843 was the equivalent of threatening to turn up at a colleague's house and use their washing machine as a toilet because they annoyed you. Babbage was holding his not inconsiderable temper in with difficulty. They argued over the details of publication too. 
On the 14th of August, 1843, Ada wrote to him, begging him to let her be the public face of the work and to hand on the politics and financing. Babbage refused. At least that's how it's framed. In reality, Ada did anything but beg. Instead, she wrote him a letter that was breathtakingly unpleasant and high-handed. The key passages are, quote, First, I want to know whether if I am to continue to work on and about your own great subject, you will undertake to abide wholly by the judgment of myself or any person whom you may now please to name as a referee when we may differ, on all practical matters relating to whatever can involve relations with any fellow creature or fellow creatures. Secondly, can you undertake to give your whole mind, wholly and undividedly, as a primary object that no engagement is to interfere with, to the consideration of all those matters in which I shall at all times require your intellectual assistance and supervision, and you can promise not to slur or hurry things over, or to mislay and allow confusion and mistakes to enter into the documents. Thirdly, if I am able to lay before you, in the course of a year or two, explicit and honourable propositions for executing your engine, such as are proved by persons whom you may now name, to be referred to for their approbation, Would there be any chance of you allowing myself and such parties to conduct the business for you? Your own undivided energies being devoted to the execution of the work and all other matters being arranged for you on terms on which your own friends should approve. My own uncompromising principle is to endeavour to love truth and God before fame and glory or even just appreciation. Yours is to love God and truth, yes, deeply and constantly, but to love fame, glory, honours yet more. Though my present relations with man, I am doubtless to become fit for relations with another order hereafter, perhaps directly with the great power himself. In summary, I am the genius, you are too in love with fame, I'm going to do even more amazing things in future, so you turn over all your inventions to me, Work on what I tell you to work on, only to assist me personally on what I give you permission to, stop making silly mistakes that annoy me, and any disagreements will only be arbitrated by friends, not yourself. Oh, and also I'll be taking over your business affairs for the following year, and your friends will judge whether you've done a good job or not. I'm sure it won't surprise listeners that he said a pretty blunt no. Yet, within a few days, they had at least reached some kind of agreement. Babbage called her, quote, much admired interpreter and the enchantress of numbers, end quote. Ada referred to herself as his high priestess of Babbage's engine, but with the egomaniacal hint of becoming, quote, high priestess of God Almighty himself, end quote. How and why she was acting like this? and why the notoriously difficult Babbage came round to her, point of view has been debated. Some have suggested she was displaying a degree of insanity, like her father, but that's pretty loose language. There's no real evidence of actual mental illness. More likely, she was just arrogant and insecure. There's also suggestions that as an aristocrat, 
she felt socially entitled to belittle whomever she liked. Babbage was the son of a banker, so was only trade. It is entirely possible she really saw him as just another servant of the upper classes. It has been speculated that part of the reason Babbage did decide to reach an agreement was that he felt she was his social superior and he needed her political connections. After all, she wasn't totally wrong about some of his shortcomings. We may never know the actual reasons or the ins and outs of it. Yet her real political connections were actually ephemeral. Neither she nor her husband were part of Queen Victoria's close circle. They had no party political allies. Wheatstone's plan to get her appointed to tutor Prince Albert would have required him to persuade the prince he needed a tutor and that no one in the whole royal society could do the job as well as Ada a woman who, when the chips were down, had only published one set of notes, no matter how brilliant. Over the years that followed, Ada became more estranged from her mother when she found out how much her mother had manipulated her over her father. Her husband ruefully reflected she was declining in health and that he was unable to be the intellectual stimulus she needed. Only Babbage could compete on her intellectual level. Her husband knew she was flirting with a lot of other men and had to destroy some of her correspondence as it was considered scandalous. She began drinking heavily and eventually decided to replace her dinner and wine with just wine. She gambled and ended up pawning her jewels to meet some of her debts. She was estimated to owe the then eye-watering sum £2,000 when she died. That's £120,000 in 2017 currency, but would have been worth 10,000 days wages for a skilled tradesman in 1840 or bought her 133 horses. But I should make you aware that her gambling habit was contested and not every historian agrees that it was as bad as claimed. How to sum up these complex people, their great ideas and ultimately their failure then? Babbage, he was a man who understood the true power of automation and how it could free humanity from labour. He was clever and inventive. His ideas and techniques to conceptualise and part build the difference engine were of the highest order. He knew he was brilliant and that just beyond his grasp was a machine that could change the world. But he couldn't quite get there for sometimes the pettiest of reasons. He wanted to be accepted by the rigid class-based society. He held parties in his house, attended by Charles Dickens, Florence Nightingale, Charles Darwin, Michael Faraday and the Duke of Wellington. The list of letters and awards after his name was a whole six lines long. To give you an example of the first couple, quote, Charles Babbage, Esquire, M.A., FRS, FRSE, FRAS, FSTAT, SON, MRIA, MCPS, Commander of the Italian Order of St. Morris and St. Lazarus, INST IMP, bracket ACAD MOL, Paris Corps, ACD, AMER, ART, end quote. I could go on. I have no idea what most of them are, but I'm going to guess a lot of academics at the time would have. Just the 
fellowship of the Royal Society was a mark of immense distinction, and he was also a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society and a Lucasian professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge, except deep down he knew, he absolutely knew, none of it mattered compared to those engines. As for Ada, well, I think Babbage got it right when he called her the Enchantress of Numbers. Some state she wasn't actually the most gifted at pure mathematics. Her technical work has been compared to a third-year maths undergraduate, but her conceptualization of mathematical ideas and their application in novel fields were genius of the highest degree. Honestly, though, her invention of what she called cycles, but what we call loops and nested loops, to reduce the volume of expressions a program required is far beyond what an undergraduate would invent from scratch. Her work on Bernoulli numbers is so far beyond my understanding, I can't really explain it to you. I can just point out that some modern programs for calculating them still use her original algorithm. Essentially, the Bernoulli number was a shortcut of calculating the sums of power of integers. Previously, this had taken years, but Bernoulli was able to boast using his step of converting part of the sum in polynomials. He could now produce the first 10 Bernoulli numbers in 15 minutes. That was staggering as it literally shaved years off the work. Unlike me, Ada actually knew what all this meant, even if she was hazy on the Bernoulli numbers themselves, and planned an algorithm that could do it on an analytical engine much faster, able to perform up to the 50th Bernoulli number in a minute. So what Bernoulli could only do 10 of in 15 minutes, she could program to do 50 of in a minute. Can you begin to imagine what humanity could have achieved if the government had given Lovelace and Babbage the money to build the complete difference and analytical engines? The revolutions in astronomy, navigation, mathematics, mechanics, metallurgy, cryptography, and God knows what else. Modern estimates have shown that adjusted for inflation, the machine the Science Museum built would have cost exactly what Babbage had always said. It's not like Ada had the only ideas for the machine. These were real computers with CPUs, data storage and programs. Babbage had ideas about design that foreshadowed modern microchip architecture. And he thought that the machine could play humans at chess, produce sounds and function as what we would call desktop publishing. If his prototypes had been fully built, it is almost certain other scientists and engineers would have grasped the essentials and the possibilities rather than overlooking his obscure and highly complex written designs. He and Ada literally built enough to start the computer age in the Victorian era. He wanted his designs and language to be taught in schools so that the machine could be used as a basis to design better machines. Remember this every time someone tells you The Victorians were boring and primitive. Just don't get too carried away. The technology was still difficult, and many of the other building blocks of the computer age 
like Boolean numbers, transistors, and the use of binary instead of decimal, weren't available to Babbage. In a cruel twist of fate, Ada died young of a terrible cancer. She has been the subject of gossip, even in her own lifetime. Her private life was sometimes scandalous, but sometimes the subject of gross embellishments. Some historians think she had a gambling addiction and had affairs. Her pursuit of Faraday seemed entirely one-sided, but he was certainly struck by her. Other historians think she was just a magnet for rumour because of her father. Her health declined over several years, and she was given increasing doses of laudanum as palliative care for uterine cancer. Eventually, she was sick enough to try cannabis for pain relief and asked Charles Dickens to visit her, to read to her about death. Then her ever-controlling mother reappeared and took Ada into isolation, just as she had when she was a child. Lady Byron asked for Ada's friends to turn over letters she had written to them, to her, for safekeeping. Many did, although Babbage shrewdly decided they might be less likely to disappear if he hung on to his copies, and he bluntly refused. Ada died in November 1852. Probably the specific cause of death was blood loss, caused by doctors letting out blood to try to treat her fatal cancer. Perhaps despite her mother, she insisted on being buried next to her father in the family tomb. She would then be overlooked as the public relations battle between Lady Byron and supporters of the late Lord Byron continued to rage over the decades. Yes, a womanising poet and his ex-wife were given more attention by history and culture for decades than his genius daughter, who transgressed the difficult sexist scientific institutional standards of the time and who virtually ushered in an early computer age and who later inspired Alan Turing. Harriet Beecher Stowe even got involved, writing a magazine article and then a book in 1870 to try to vindicate Lady Byron's reputation. It mentions Ada nine times in the whole text and only in reference to her as a child. You can still read books or newspaper articles today written about the frankly tedious relationship of poet and Lady Byron. You might even find the odd line mentioning Ada, then back to relating everything to the warring parents. Clearly, being a genius who invented the basis for civilization in the late C20th and early 21st century is less important than celebrity gossip about her parents, he says through gritted teeth. Babbage also had cause to complain about going unrecognized. He continued to write papers and was extremely bitter about his treatment over the analytical engine. He wasn't able to acknowledge his own shortcomings and his constant changes to designs being contributors to the problems, but he knew that he could have built it and that he was turned down and mocked. The chapter on the analytical engine in his autobiography began, ironically, with a quote from Lord Byron, Man wrongs and time avenges. To say Babbage had a chip on his shoulder would be an understatement. When a newspaper published an account of an evening with him, entitled, quote, A Twilight Gossip with the Past, end quote, 
implying that he was a relic of the past, you can see why he felt ill-served. Even in death, he got little dignity. His brain was cut out and preserved to be put on display. Effectively forgotten, they wouldn't really be rediscovered until physicist Bertrand Bowden stumbled across Ada's name during research and found some of her papers through her granddaughter. Both were immense geniuses, as you can see, and also very real, flawed people. They weren't in costume, giving terrible talking points, a bite-sized history, or a book of the world's most amazing inventions, or inspiring feminist tales for girls. They lived real lives, with immense frustrations and pains. Ultimately, they failed in their own times, and were overlooked for over a century. They weren't a triumphalist story. They are one of history's great might-have-beens. But today, built on their early insights, the genius of Alan Turing and the World War II codebreakers, then the American pioneers, the brilliance of Tim Berners-Lee and his invention of the World Wide Web, you can listen to a podcast on Lovelace and Babbage anywhere in the world on a portable supercomputer in your pocket. I hope at least this episode makes their shade smile wherever they have ended up. Let's give them a huge big thank you for making this anniversary special possible. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ageofvictoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for The Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.